All right, everybody. Good morning. We're in Acts chapter 19. Uh, welcome, everybody, to service. Great service so far. Thanks to the great welcome uh, from Josh and Dion uh, to prepare our hearts, uh, to even focus us on Christ right from the get-go, and then from Andrew and Nicole. Great story from Nicole, just sharing her, how her story is it connected to somebody else's story, and which God put in motion 30 years ago, and then Andrew to help us see how God multiplies what we give in contribution and what we give uh, back to Jesus, even in our own um, devotion. And so thanks to everyone so far who's been part of the, part of the service today, the singing, the worship. It's just been wonderful. Uh, so we'll continue on uh, with looking at some of the Word of God. Amen. And we're, uh, a lot of you guys know that we are looking at the fullness of Christ this year. It's our theme, the fullness of Christ. It comes from a scripture in Ephesians, um, Ephesians 4. And uh, it's this idea that we can never get to know Jesus perfectly. We're always going to continue to learn uh, about Jesus and the depths of who he is and how he relates to us in life. And this today, I think, will actually help to, uh, to that end. I think as we were, to, we were taking three uh, sort of introductory sermons to take a look before we dive into uh, the book of Ephesians. Actually, this is good to do with any book you read in the New Testament, especially that's an epistle, that's a letter to a church, go read Acts, because Acts most likely tells you about the, the beginning of that church. So Ephesians, go read about Ephesus. Colossians, go read about Colossae. Galatians, go read about Galatia. Many of them are in Acts. And so Ephesus actually has one of the longest sections in all of Acts, in Acts 18 and 19. So we're splitting it up into three sermons. We did part one two weeks ago, and then we'll have part two today. Uh, and we'll continue on with part three and finish it off at James Madison next week. Dukes, that's right. It'll be a lot of fun there at JMU. So the first sermon we talked about was Priscilla and Aquila, who kind of begin the church in Ephesus. And they're, um, they're not full-time ministers. They're just, they work full-time jobs. They're tent makers. And they happen to be attending synagogue. They hear a guy preaching. They realize that what he's preaching is not actually 100% biblical. So they sit down with him, have a Bible study, say, hey, do you want to come over for dinner? He says, yes, let's have a Bible study. And they explain to him the Bible says the word of God more accurately, which is a wonderful way to think about Bible studies, right? right. We want to sit down and study, we want to study the way of God more accurately and kind of bring ourselves continually back to what the Bible says. Yes. Um, uh, so is that Gracia? Hey, Gracia's here. Wow. Yeah. Hey, welcome back, Gracia. Yeah. Wow. Just sounds like that. No, that's Gracia. Uh, Welcome, Gracia. Good to see you. But um, after, the, after Priscilla and Aquila uh, con- convert a guy named Apollos, uh, Paul reaches out to some disciples there uh, who are also kind of off on their faith. It says they're disciples, but they still don't know about uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, basically who the Holy Spirit is. So Paul explains to them more adequately what's going on. Then it says in Acts 19, we'll actually pick up In verse 8, it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all of the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul rarely stayed anywhere for longer than a few weeks, if, if you know. Usually he was kicked out or had to leave for some reason. But in Ephesus, he's there for years, which is an incredible thing, which helps us know why later in Acts, he's got such great connections with the church and great friendships. 
Verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva. A, that's a hard to say, right? Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish, Jewish chief priest. They were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know about, but who are you? Whoa. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this, came, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed that they, what they had done. Uh, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the total value of the scrolls, it came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, where he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Okay, so we're going to look at, I know it's a three-part sermon, but really today and next time are really answering the question, what happens today, what happens next time in Ephesus? And answers the question, what happens when the word of God is unleashed on a city? Wow. Um, and so we're going to talk about how people respond to the word of God. There's a various, there are various responses to the word of the Lord. But first, there was a man, and he was engaged, and his fiancée was in Europe, and she found the most beautiful uh, piece of jewelry. So she texted him a picture of it, but she also texted the price tag. Um, which was about 10,000 uh, euro. And so uh, he, she texted her uh, fiancé back, and she said, you know, what do you think about me getting this? Um, and, uh, you know, he was a well-off guy, so I think she was kind of hoping he would, you know, kind of foot the bill there. So uh, he knows what she means, and uh, she would like him to pay for it. So uh, he responds uh, with this text. No cost too high. Now he realizes... After a few minutes, a sense of terror because he realizes he forgot a period after the no. And he realizes that his small mistake has cost him dearly. Uh, the title of my lesson today is No Cost Too High. Uh, no Cost Too High. A lot of... Um, Aaron, do you mind just turning the, uh, the laptop toward me so I can see? Yes, beautiful, so I can see what's coming next, if it'll move. Beautiful. Okay, perfect. So remember the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus is really known for two things. And we're going to talk about the cost of discipleship today. We're going to talk about the cost of following Jesus. Ephesus is a big city. It's a port city. It's a big deal. It's, it's a, along two massive roads. And it's really known for two things. Uh, magic and the temple to Artemis. Both these things will be dealt with in today's sermon and next week's sermon. 
Cities usually have a pulse, a personality, something that kind of makes them a city. You guys know Charlottesville. We have certain things that make us Charlottesville. Yeah. Uh, some are good, uh, like hiking, you know, or health, um, or, or kind of a small town feel with a lot of big, you know, large town amenities. Yeah. Um, some are not so good, you know. A lot of you, things to come to mind on that front in terms of what that looks like, in terms of what you feel maybe in the city. And every city has those, by the way. Every city has good. Every city has, oh, I kind of, I don't really like this about the city. Um, but in, in the sense of kind of the absence of Jesus, this city is definitely dominated by two major uh, idols, the idol to Artemis and the idol to magic. Even to this day, we have a lot of artifacts out of Ephesus that are just incantations. And there are several in, uh, in the, uh, uh, the museum in Paris and several in, the, in a museum in London that say that actually have uh, we have one in Paris that actually says, uh, by the God of the Hebrews, I drive you out. And so what had happened was. If you knew about um, kind of this time, what happened was is the Jews were really well known for actually being, uh, for exercising demons because the Jews would never say the name Yahweh. You could never say it. So they would come up with different words like Elohim or even in the Bible, they'd leave it blank because they didn't want to say God's name because it was just too revered, too respected. Jews today won't say it. Uh, uh, pious Jews won't say it. And so uh, incantations back then, basically the strength of an incantation was in the secrecy of the, the, the letters. And so most incantations were gibberish. They were just, you know, humana, humana, humana. They were just uh, these, these things. But if you keep it secret, they actually would, people who were sick or demon-possessed or really desperate, you could say, I have this magical incantation. And who's to say that some of them didn't work? I don't know if they worked or not. I think in our sort of um, scientific method mindset, we can say it was all just kind of hogwash. I don't know so much about that. I don't think, I don't think our perspective on that is necessarily the right one. A lot of cultures in this world are still very, uh, very much traditionalist and, and view the idea of demons and, and animalistic forces of the world that kind of can, can war on what we do and who we are. And I believe that somewhere in the middle is a truth. But we see that people, the Jews, began to hear that there was a, some other success with another name. And so they do what people do, and they wanted to capitalize on this opportunity. They saw a chance to use the name Jesus. They had heard that the name Jesus was quite a powerful name. So they try to use the name Jesus to drive out a demon. And perhaps they think, you know what? Seven on one. We've got good odds here. Seven brothers, seven sons of Siva. Let's go. We're going to drive out, this, drive out this demon. I don't know if he was a big fella. Obviously, he had some kind of extra strength because of his condition. But um, they, try to, they try to drive out the demon and they are beaten uh, severely to the point where everyone knows the name, everyone knows the story. Uh, and then something interesting happens. It says the name of the Lord was highly praised. Um, and I found that to be interesting because when something like that happens, uh, I don't necessarily think, oh, someone tried to use the name Jesus. They were beaten up. Praise God. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's sort of a natural, right? It's, it's, it says, when this became known, right, they were all seized with fear in verse 17. And the name of the Lord was held in high honor. That word in Greek is exalted. It's raised high. It's praised. It's honored. So why would this episode uh, of these Jewish exorcists who try to, you know, hijack Jesus's name, then get beaten up, why would it be in the Bible? And then why would that incident actually help people to praise Jesus's name? It's kind of the question of the hour. And it's not just that it helped them question Jesus's name. Or it's not a question, praise Jesus's name. It helped them not just praise his name, but do something incredible. 
do something that kind of all, scares all of us a little bit. And they gave up not only their sin, but they destroyed the valuables of the sin. And it's one thing to kind of say, okay, I'm not going to ever, you know, smoke weed again. It's another thing to sell or, or throw away the stash worth thousands, right? Or to get rid of it. It's one thing to, to dispose, to throw it away, to trash it. Maybe you've got a tablet and you just can't stay pure, can't keep your eyes pure on that thing. So you, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm, not, I'm really going to try hard not to look at it. It's another thing to throw that away, to dispose of the, the $700 tablet because you don't want to sin anymore. So something powerful has to happen in that case. Something powerful has to happen in us to do something so drastic. And we even sometimes are nervous to call others to do things like that, to repent in those ways. We're very much at home with like, love God deep in your heart and love him in your own way and come to church and, and pray and read your Bible when you have time. Um, all right, good, have a good week. The cost is often too high for us when it comes to following Jesus. And there's a, a, an insecurity. And you remember that story of the rich young ruler? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and then come follow me. Since that story happened 2,000 years ago, theologians have been trying to dance around it. They've been trying to go, oh, sell everything you have? That, they, they, you know, Jesus only sends that to him in the New Testament. He doesn't say it to anybody else. So for us, we just have to sell everything we have in our heart. We don't have to actually sell it in real life. Well, hold on, what, what, what does the scripture say? It says a guy actually sold everything. You say, well, hold on, Drew, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. He's one of those preachers that wants me to do something crazy, right? I'm just saying that something powerful happened with these people. And we have to actually take a look at what happened with them because I think we are at risk of just being people who come to God and come to Jesus only when the cost seems affordable. And that is a dangerous place. It is a place doomed to have a church of dead people listening to a dead preacher with dead sermons. It's just going to be an extracurricular activity. It won't change anybody. But something happened in Ephesus that changed their lives. And even more astounding, what happened before this? Priscilla and Aquila were there. Great leaders. Apollos, ah, incredible leader. He plants the church in Corinth. Paul, St. Paul, Paul of Tarsus, Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul, the second most important person in terms of the spread of Christianity besides Jesus Christ. Paul is there for two to three years. But it doesn't cause them to come to a place where they're willing to sell their sin and repent. I think sometimes we can get so caught up in, we've got to have an organized church. We've got to have good leaders. We have no leaders. Where are the leaders? Where are the leaders? We've got to have organization. We've got to have great programs for the kids. We've got to have great programs. We've got to have, and we can kind of get into this place of like, even when we share our faith, we're talking about, I go to a great church and it's a fun church and it's, it's a great church and it's a cool church and we can kind of, everything just kind of gets more watered down. But it wasn't the name of a church, I think, that caused us to fall in love with Jesus. Yeah. It was Jesus. Yeah. And this whole passage is about, don't be trifling with the name Jesus. Yeah. Don't try to just take it and use it. Don't just take him and use him when he's convenient for you. Yeah. It is like a powerful weapon in untrained hands. Mm-hmm. And the Jewish high priests and the sons were like, let's just use the name Jesus. And then we'll kind of, I think what happened is people realized, don't mess with this guy. Yeah. He's not just some credit card for you to go to when you sin and use when you want 
and then feel better and then go to him when you sin. Hey, we haven't been, we haven't read our Bible in a while. Let's, okay, let's go back to Jesus. We haven't prayed in a while. Let's just go back to Jesus. And I think there's something in us that is so, that is, it is Satan's best weapon against us. You know, and there's something here that's, that's crucial. It's the turning point of the passage. And we can't get around it. And I tried to get around it, by the way, in my own, in my own um, flesh, because it is uncomfortable even for me. You think, oh, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's uncomfortable even for me. But it's verse 17. When, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. You know, at this point, the Ephesians had heard three years of Paul's sermons. I wish I had Paul's podcast. <laughs> three years of Paul's podcast? That'd be great. That'd be good stuff, right? Come on, sign me up. But the sermons didn't change him. Yeah. And sermons won't change us. Yeah. Come on, Drew. They had great leaders, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos. If, if uh, Ephesus might have had the best like, gallery of leaders in the entire New Testament, didn't, didn't, didn't change them. They had their doctrine corrected. They didn't know about baptism. Their doctrine was, but the doctrine being corrected didn't change them. And I think sometimes we think, oh yeah, I just uh, need to tweak my doctrine, but that doesn't change your heart. Yeah. Oh, if I just had a great leader, that won't change your heart. Yeah. Oh, if we just had great organization in the church, that does not change your heart. And no matter how we try to get around it, no matter how we try to avoid it, I love the book of Acts because Acts, there's nothing in Acts about church organization. Nothing. You think if it mattered to the Holy Spirit, he would have been like, put something in there about like how they're going to organize because they're going to worry about it for 2,000 years. <laughs> nothing in there about organization. Nothing. Because that is not from where our power comes. It is in the name of Jesus. A name that is too often cast aside. You ever shared your faith with somebody or gotten in a conversation and you talk about church? And it's kind of okay. You talk about church like, ah, go to church. Oh, that's nice. They ask you a great, uh, you know what's popular? You know, a great youth group. The word youth group is so fun and easy and soft. Oh, look, I'm part of a youth group. Oh, great. That sounds wonderful. My heart is so warmed by the words youth group. Um, You have a youth group? Yeah, we have a youth group. Okay, wonderful. What do you think about Jesus? Let's get out of here. You know, it's like, Hey, what do you think? If you walk on, if you walk on campus, you go to a church. Oh yeah, I do. Or I'm not, not faith isn't my thing. What do you think of Jesus, dude? I'm walking here. That is inappropriate. Don't talk to me about Jesus at work. Don't talk about that's Jesus. Whoa! It's funny how even too, as years ago, I noticed they on TV they started to kind of you know, they bleep out certain words, yeah. and they'll like they'll bleep out certain words that are offensive. But I remember watching a show on this you know broadcast, and they wouldn't bleep out the Lord's name in vain. Yeah. But they were like bad ones, like, you know, I don't know, it felt bad to me, but they would bleep out other things that would offend people, but not Jesus' name. Yeah. And it's funny how when we use Jesus' name, even when we're angry, there's a power we're kind of pulling from it. Yeah. People who don't believe in God will still use his name to cuss. Jesus' name has a power, yeah. but it cannot be trifled with. It cannot be messed with. It cannot be just used to our own advantage. Yeah. There's something interesting about fear. Because when we think of fear, and the reason I try to get around it we all try to get around fear. Yeah. The reason that we all struggle with the idea of fear, it's for a lot of reasons, mostly because we're in a pendulum swing from the postmodernism. We'll talk about that later. But we don't like the idea of discipline, fear, anger. You have to follow it. Restrictions, all that stuff bothers us. Institutions, nah, nope. Individualism, expression, do what you want. We're going to love, not fear. You know, be like Michael Scott. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me, right? That's what we want, right? But we want to be both feared and loved, but really just, just loved, right? Think about fear that's powerful. 
I think when we, when we think about fear, we think about fright. It's not, that's not the fear in the Bible. Fright is not the fear in the Bible. Now, that's an aspect of this deeper notion of fear, but it's not the fear in the Bible. In fact, Psalm 40, verse 3 says, He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Why would you put your trust in someone that you're afraid of? Let's take a second. Fear in the Bible does not mean fright. Okay? This passage says when we, when we fear the Lord, we actually trust him. Yeah. Wait, hold on. What does that mean? Second Chronicles 26 and Psalm 34, I didn't show them, but they actually say that you can actually learn to grow in your fear of the Lord. These passages say, teach me, Lord, to fear you more. Hold on. Why? Why are, we, why are people in the Bible trying to learn how to fear God more? Seems weird. Seems strange. But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. That word reverence is the same for fear. It's just translated to reverence. Um, Psalm 134. How about this one? And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11, 3. Psalm 130 is crazy, right? With you, there is forgiveness so that we can fear you. When you're forgiven, and do you, do you, are you afraid of that person more? Because it's not necessarily fright. One commentator talks about Psalm 130, and he says fear in the Bible has to do with a relationship. Yeah. And it has to do more with this idea, not of being afraid, but of being overwhelmed. Fear actually is this idea of being overwhelmed in awe. We don't use that word anymore, awe, or being, we talk about being overwhelmed a little bit, and that's a little closer. But now it begins to make sense because someone who fears people cannot fear God. And if we're afraid of what people think of us, then we can't please God. And so we begin to get deeper into our hearts, deeper, deeper, deeper. We are all compelled by something. Something gets you up in in the morning. What is it? Something gets you up in the morning. Some of you go straight to work out at the gym. You are compelled to exercise. It's something drives you. Some of you get up and you, you have quiet times. Amen. Something compels us in that regard as well. Something compels us to go to work, even though you hate that job. You hate it. And we all know you hate it. But you go. You do something you don't want to do. But you go. You're driven by something. You are around people you don't want to be around. You do things you don't want to do all the time because something drives you. For many of us, we stay up toiling in the night to study, right? To get good grades because we are driven by this idea of success in academia. Some of us in high school, perhaps it happens a lot when you're young, right? But you do things that are crazy because your friends suggest them. Or your friends think, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? You're like, yeah, that would be cool. And your brains haven't developed yet, so you're just going doing whatever you want to do. I have a lot of stories of dumb things I did, but sometimes it's just, I, don't, I want to do what they want to do because I want my friends to, to like me. I want my friends to like me, or, or maybe they shamed me, right? Or they said, that was stupid, or you, you can't do that, you're narrow-minded. Well, I want my friends to like me. Something drives you. Some of us get bad grades, so our friends will like us. We all have something deep within us that compels us, that drives us, that motivates us. And it's interesting, I think, when we... We'll deny ourselves with work, but not with God. I'll go to work, but I hate work. But why are you going? You shouldn't have to do what you don't want to do. But something drives you. A deeper truth. You say, well, I need to work because I need the money. I need to take care of my family. I need to be a good father. That's what drives you. 
But a lot of times, if we don't want to, we won't pray. If we don't want to, we won't read the Bible. If we don't want to, we won't attend church. Because I don't want to. So there's nothing deep motivating you for church, for God, for your Bible, for your own personal walk. What is, who, so who, so who, why are you following God? Who's it for? It's not for God. Who's it for? And there's something powerful about fear because fear, a couple of things come from fear, right? We've got to grow in our fear, but forgiveness actually helps us fear the Lord. And I'm not saying, well, I've got to go fear God. He could kill you right now. You all are sitting over. God holds you like a spider over hell and you will burn for eternity. Always tormented, never dying. It is on its way. Hell, hell, hell. I could, we could do that. But I don't think that's the heart of what real deep fear actually does. It's actually God's forgiven me. The more you see God's forgiveness of you. Josh said this earlier, right? The more you see what God, how God, God's forgiven me, the more I actually have a relationship with him. The more I want to serve him, the more I'm motivated to, to give back. I think it's when we lose touch with how much we've been forgiven that we lose, that we actually pull back in our relationship with God. And then we don't fear God. And then we fear people more or we fear, we have our own self-fear, right? Of giving, and some, so we are all afraid of something. And one of the powerful things about this passage is what the Ephesians do. And in Proverbs, these are actually back-to-back verses. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper. Great memory verse, by the way, for when you're tempted to go ahead and conceal some sin. Whoever conceals sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces finds mercy. It's a good verse because what are, we, what are we better at, confessing or renouncing? Oh, confessing, for sure. We, we're okay. I think even confession for some of us is hard, but this passage says whoever confesses and renounces. What is so powerful about the Ephesians? They confessed and divulged their secrets. They used to, this magic was their livelihood, maybe. It was their job. It was something that they used to do. They divulged the secrets, they confessed it, and they burned it. And they counted how much it cost, which tells you it was probably a lot of money. <laughs> if they counted it, they were probably like, how much is in there, you think? Like this, uh, 50,000 drachmas. Holy cow. All right. That's a lot. But this is public denunciation of what they're doing. But you might think, but how can I confess? What if people don't like me? What if people reject me? What if if I I don't like church? What if my family doesn't? What if, what if, what if? Fear, 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 fear. Insecurity, insecurity, insecurity. What if? Next proverb. Blessed is the one who always trembles before God. But whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. Church, I want to challenge us. I want to encourage us to, for a second, not worry about anybody else. Not worry about the church. Not worry about your husband or your wife or your kids. Not worry about your circumstances. I know it's tough, but divorce yourself from these worries. Think about your relationship with Jesus. How's it been? Do you get up in the morning and go to the prayer closet? Are you wrestling in prayer? Throughout your week. You know, it's, it's, it's so easy how we can think, oh my goodness, we're not going to make it because we don't have the, the, enough numbers. Our ministry is small. I don't know. We don't have the right people. Or we don't have the right schedule. I'm busy. It's been difficult. I, I don't know what to, I, I, I'm just, I'm not strong enough. I'm too weak. And I get home. I just, I worry, I worry, I worry. For a second, if we can approach God every morning and tremble at his forgiveness, yeah. tremble at how wonderful his grace is, Tremble at how magnificent he is because he knows you 
and your sin. And he knows you way better than all those friends you're trying to please will know you. He knows you and he still died for you. And he still wants, not just to die for you. I love the idea of a story talked about by Andrew and Nicole. God didn't just die for your sin. Jesus wants you to be part of his story. If we got baptized because we wanted our sins forgiven, we're missing something. That is, that, is the, that is the least of it. God has an entire life for you planned out. On. One where he walks with you in a relationship. And if, oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, we'll become Christians because my sins are forgiven. That, is, that should be the footnote on the story of your life with God. Come on. Oh yeah, he happened to forgive my sins years ago. But have, you, have you heard what he's done recently with me? He has transformed my, my perspective on parenting. He has changed. I didn't think I could ever get up early. I've been getting up early to pray. It's been crazy. God, has, God wants... To not just forgive you, he wants to work with you, to love you, to be in a relationship with you because heaven does not start someday. Heaven starts now. And we have a role to do now. It's no pie in the sky, right? Hope of, oh, someday. No, now. We've been redeemed now. And I think sometimes we worry, but we have to realize that those who kneel in prayer can stand in any situation. Those who give their hearts in prayer Fear nothing. You can, anybody can preach. All it takes is some charisma, a bunch of learning. I can memorize a bunch of stuff. Doesn't matter. Prayer is where battles are won. Yeah. Anybody, can be, uh, anybody can go to work and punch in and punch out. Prayer is where families are saved. Yeah. Prayer is where marriages are salvaged. And not just salvaged, but made to be an actual incredible time. Yeah. It's not about being charismatic or cool or fun to convert people. It's about praying for your friends, praying for your neighbors. Praying for those at work who are hurting and turning to politics and other hobbies and giving their their whole life to doing things and trying in some ways to kind of hijack the mission of Jesus because they like what they see, but they don't know about the cost. They don't know if it's worth it. But if you pray for them, if they're on your heart, it is prayer where these battles are won. And if we can be a church of prayer, if we're just a church, Satan Satan is not afraid by well-organized churches. They don't scare him. A church that's praying together. That's what causes Satan to not only believe in Jesus, but shudder. Because it is prayer that changes. If we're not praying, we're dying. We're pulling away. Someone once said, a a praying man will stop sinning. A sinning sinning man will stop praying. I think when we sin, we actually pull back from God. I'm in sin, how can I pray? But a praying person will actually, it'll help you with your sin. A praying person will stop sinning, but a sinning person will stop praying. Prayer, prayer is a beautiful thing. Your kids don't know very much at an early age. They can't talk about doctrine or the Trinity. They don't know different things. You can try to explain to them, like, uh, you know, free will at the age of three. No, okay. But you know what you can teach a two-year-old? How to pray. You ever been in a family's house? It's time to pray. Two-year-old, na 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 And you're like, ah, it's wonderful. It's, it's, uh, we can teach our kids. And we're actually te- we're transforming our families. It may not seem like much, but if you teach your kid to pray and nothing else, you have taught them to love Jesus. You have taught them that they always have a last vestige of hope. They always have a place to retreat. They always have a closet to go to where Jesus, they, I can go talk to Jesus. I can go connect with God. That the world will reject them, but we can pray together. God, far be it from us if we hear, oh, midweek is a prayer night. Ah, I don't need to go. We're praying this week at midweek. I'm not going to go. Far be it from us to view prayer that way. Far be it from us to think I don't have time to pray. 
Far be it from us to think, I only have five minutes. It's, I can't pray right now. Prayer is not about length or depth. or Prayer is about a commitment to a relationship. When you go to God in prayer, you know, there's three truths of who we are, who we think we are, who people think we are, and who God knows we are. When we go to God in prayer, we're reminded of who we are. But sometimes there are cabinets and corridors in our soul. And we know if we pray, the Holy Spirit's going to come knocking. I don't want to let him in because he's going to say, what is in this room? You're going to say, I don't want to let you in. But prayer is about vulnerability. Prayer is about trusting in Jesus to do the work. Prayer is about going. I mean, prayer is about going to the only place where power resides. I love this, this story because... Paul couldn't do it. Priscilla and Aquila couldn't do it. Apollos couldn't do it. Three years of sermons couldn't do it. The name of Jesus did it. That's what the name Jesus can do in our lives. And I want to encourage us as a church. Let's be a church that prays. Let's be a church that if that's all we do is pray. And if, if you're just afraid of an awkward response of, hey, let's pray. When you get together, when you get coffee with somebody, hey, you mind if we pray? Call somebody. You want to pray on the way to work? Pray on the way home? Pray with your kids? Pray by yourself? You know, the trick to uh, the secret, rather, to praying a lot of times is praying in secret. Have private time with God. Pray, pray by yourself. Pray on your own. Pray as a family. Pray as a church. Right. This week, let's go to God in prayer. And don't worry so much about whether you're enough or whether you'll be. Because when you go to prayer, you know, you realize I'm remembering. I'm not. Devotional this Friday might be awful. I don't have, it's not prepared, it's not ready, I don't know what this, I don't know that. We go to God in prayer, it's amazing when someone is at peace. Organization doesn't matter so much. But I think for me, this is hard for me, because I want things to be perfect, and I want to put out a good product, and I want to do all these things, but sadly, that just perpetuates the problem. It's just a a sermon born in the head reaches the head, but a sermon born in the heart reaches the heart. I want to repent it myself. I want to be able to be a, a preacher known for praying. I want to be able to have us be a church that if we we're known for anything, let it be that we're in that prayer closet. Let it be that we're praying together and connected together. Prayer is the way to withstand persecution. Prayer is the way to be able to work through these times of difficulty and to pray for one another. Pray by yourself. Pray with each other. Pray together. Prayer is a great discipline to be able to learn. I wanted to close out with uh, a quote from this book by a guy with one of the best names ever, Leonard Ravenhill. Great name. But he says, unless we are desperate to get into real victory, we are so easy on ourselves and so hard on others. It will not do to call sin by some other name, saying the other fellow has a devilish temper. Mine is just righteous indignation. She is touchy. My irritability is just a case of nervousness. He is covetous. I'm expanding my business. He is stubborn. I have convictions. She is proud. I have superior taste. I like that one. There is a cover-up for anything if you want it. But the Spirit will neither spare us nor cheat us if we expose ourselves to his infallible scrutiny. Jesus said to the blind man, what should I do for for you? He said, Lord, I pray that I may receive sight. Let us too pray for sight, upward, inward, and outward. Then like Isaiah, as we look upward, we'll see the Lord in all his holiness. As we look inward, 
we will see ourselves and our need for cleansing and power. And as we look outward, we will see a world that is perishing and in need of a savior. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wickedness in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. Then and only then will there be passion in the pulpit and action in the pew. And I wanted to close out with a little bit of a dream I have. And I think about this year and we want to, we have all these dreams. I have all these dreams of what we want to see in the church. But I have a dream that we can be a church not known for organization, not known for preaching, not known for worship, but known for praying. And I have a dream that anybody can walk in those doors of any race, any ethnicity, any gender. They identify however they want sexually. Doesn't matter. They can walk in with no money, a rich person, upper class, lower class. Anyone can walk in those doors and see a church that is in love with Jesus, a community of grace, a community of trust, a community that loves the truth, but also isn't judgmental about people who are struggling in their own sin. I have a dream that we can all have small communities, that each family group is a little church that is enough, that has preachers and elder types and deacon types, and that is a little family, and that we have these little lights in Charlottesville and in Harrisonburg, and that people know one thing when they walk into our family groups. They don't know what what the doctrine is. They don't know uh, our capabilities, our abilities, or our gifts, or lack thereof, but they know that we're a group that prays together. And when they hear us pray they'll know that this is not a vocation of the flesh, but this is in fact the Holy Spirit moving. Yeah. This is, and they look around and, they, and, they, and when they hear the songs, and they may not like the songs because they grew up with different songs. They may not like what they see. They may not like how far away the drive is, but it does not matter because they are overwhelmed by the grace of the community. And I pray that we can extend to others the grace we feel privately with Jesus that we can experience that grace privately so that when we come to church with each other, we can be able to express it publicly. Let's not be the man who, is getting, who gets baptized or the woman who gets baptized and says, ah, I forgot the period after the no. Can I come to church? Can I read my Bible? Can I pray? No, the cost is too high. But rather I pray we can say, you remember what Jesus did for me? I am overwhelmed by his forgiveness. There is no cost too high to what I can do. And let it begin in the prayer closet, in the privacy of our homes this week. Amen. And to God be the glory.